If you've bought property, you likely funded your purchase partly through a mortgage. If the property increases in value over time by more than the cost of the borrowing, you're better off. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a podcast by the Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. I'm Chris Bates. Thank you so much for tuning in. Got a uh, special guest in the studio today and um, it's going to be a very interesting conversation for us today. And um, I've got Carlos Cacho. Uh, he's the Chief Economist at Jardin. I've known Carlos for a long time and um, he's an amazing operator and very good at, uh, I guess, giving us a good litmus test on the market on many different levels and from a banking level to a borrowing capacity to Australian property. So welcome, Carlos. Thank you so much for um, the chat. Thanks for having me, Chris. Happy to be here. Awesome. So um, I guess, uh, you know, you guys produced some amazing research. I think, um, not to, to call you out, but, you know, you sent me some research recently. It's just basically highlighted just how the market's really surprised us so much in the last 12 months, you know. You know, everyone was expecting some significant falls going into 2023. And it's really jumped the other way. I mean, could you give us a bit of an insight into coming into 2023 and, you know, and what's happened in 2023, how, how that's really surprised you? Yeah, sure. Happy to kind of give a bit of an overview, Chris. So coming into this year, um, our expectation was that we would see the, the falls in, in home prices continue. Um, the key driver of that was the impact of rate hikes. So the way... Um, I generally, as an economist, think about house prices is it, it largely comes down to the buying power of borrowers or of, of purchases, and that's usually driven by their access to credit or, or how much money they can they can borrow from the bank. Um, not always 100% the case, but in general, if the bank's going to loan you an extra dollar, you might be willing to pay an extra dollar for, the, for that property. So it does historically over a 20-plus year relationship, we've seen a really strong relationship 
between house prices and and how much um, households can can borrow for housing. Um, and that borrowing capacity, as we call it, has fallen about 30%. And we expect to see not quite the same fall, but about a 20% fall in house prices um, following that. What we saw is um, is house prices fell um, a bit under 10% nationally, um, a bit more in some markets like Sydney. Um, and now they're almost back to prior, prior peaks. So nationally, we're just 1.3% off the peak uh, level of, um, of, of dwelling um, prices that we saw back in um, early 2022. So it's been pretty miraculous. And that's happened at the same time as that borrowing capacity or that buying power for your average buyer is still down by 30%. So it's really, um, it's been very surprising. Um, and I'm happy we can kind of dig into some of the issues that we think are driving that um, in a moment. Yeah, and I think that's why it's, uh, I mean, it surprised me, right? So I, I absolutely coming into um, 2023 thought how you know capacity has really fell 40 percent I guess on a on a borrowing but a lot of people there's a bit of wage increases right so your 30 percent includes around 10 percent of wage increases roughly is that roughly your number yeah so we, we incorporate within that number we we capture the increase in incomes um, as well as uh, the change in APRA's serviceability buffer that's the three percent rate that banks put on top of your interest rate. Um, to make sure you can afford higher rates, as well as um, higher expenses. So most of the banks will use as a low bar for your expenses, something called the household expenditure measure. And it's basically a measure of basic living costs mm. um, that they use as a sense check or, or just to make sure that what you're telling them um, is, is about right. And so we incorporate all those things together. And depending on your income, all those variables are going to be different. But what we find is for a higher income household, it's a little bit less than 30% altogether. But for a lower income household, it can be quite a bit more because those expenses are going to be taking up a greater share of your of your after-tax income. And so there's going to be less there um, left over to potentially service a mortgage. Yeah, and so I mean, when you saw that rates going up four percent, you know, so people paying mortgages at six percent rather than you know two to three percent, and borrowing capacity falling thirty percent, you know, even up higher, like as you said, you'd think that house prices and property prices wouldn't have held up because you know going back in time, you know, that was a huge driver of prices. I mean, what's what sort of do you think you know you know counter cyclical to that has been pushing prices back up? Look, I think there's a couple of factors in our view that have, that have contributed. Um, I think the first one, that really what lit the spark under the market is, is the shift in sentiment. Late last year in around October and November, the RBA um, softened their tone a little bit around, around interest rates. Um, listeners might remember in October, the, everyone was expecting the RBA, or most people were expecting the RBA was going to do another 50 basis point hike. They only hiked 25. Um, and then in November, they started softening their language around further hikes to come. And then coming into January, the consensus view was um, through the media and the market that, oh, maybe there's one more hike to do. I, th I think we had a you know a similar conversation like this in, in you know, kind of around January, February, and that was kind of the view that was out there at the time. Um, and that optimism around interest rates fed through into house price expectations. And we can see that through uh, survey-based measures, um, Westpac and the Melbourne Institute put out one of those measures. That measure of house price expectations have, has increased um, from near record lows around kind of mid to late last year to almost back at um, peak boom 2021 levels. It's up 60% from the lows, so it's just surged highs. So that sentiment has really been key. Um, but what really provided the fuel, in our view, is just the total lack of stock. The supply on market um, never got up to average levels um, 
as, as everyone probably knows, demand for houses went through the roof during COVID, during 2021 and the early part of 2022. That saw stock on market really fall as, as properties that had sometimes been sitting on, on the market for a while um, went off. And what we've seen over the last um, few years is total listings, so the total stock of properties listed for sale has never been lower. Um, and that meant essentially that buyers didn't have that much choice. And if we compare this downturn to the downturn in, in 2018, 2019, which was sparked by the, the responsible lending um, focus from, from regulators and, and banks tightening up their lending standards as a response, um, we see a starkly different picture in terms of supply of dwellings. In 2018 or 2019, if, if we look at supply or listings on the market as a share of sales, so months of supply, um, as we call it, during 2018-19, that blew out to almost eight months at one stage. So essentially mm. for every month of sales, if, if you had no more supply coming to the market, it would have taken you know, eight months to run down what was there listed on the market. During this latest downturn, the worst it got was about three or four. Um, the long-term average is about four. So we never really saw um, that material increase in supply and that meant that we didn't really see um, that the market really truly become a, a buyer's market. Yes, there was a period when buyers were certainly in retreat. And so it was, you know, they had the upper hand, um, but we never saw that big increase in supply that we've seen in prior downturns. Um, and that just meant that when people did have that confidence because the RBA turned a little bit softer, um, the buyers were essentially just having to pay what they had to pay to get the property. You know, life is still happening. People are still getting married, getting divorced, having kids. Um, and that's driving them to, to make property decisions. And um, in many cases, they haven't had a whole lot of good options. So they've just been, they've just had to pay what they what they had to pay to um to to get the deal. Yeah, I mean it's very interesting. We we sort of saw peak fear, you know, back in late 2022. I did a post on LinkedIn. I just thought it was crazy the power buyers had at that point in time. It was, but we could see, you know, getting closer to Christmas, you know, our buyers had a different view on it. They're a little bit more optimistic. And you're right, they were starting to miss out. They could getting frustrated that nothing was on the market. Um, I mean, you mentioned there that the what other things do you think are forcing buyers to enter, right? So um, yeah, I mean it house price growth is one reason to buy, but, you know, things like the rental crisis, what other things do you think that are encouraging buyers that now it's a good time to enter, even though rates are, you know, are very expensive and, you know, 6% compared to where they were, what's giving the confidence of buyers to take action? Well, there's definitely an anticipation of, of rates will come down. Um, you know, we see that in, again, survey-based measures and anecdotally when I when I speak to, you know, people, Real estate agents, mortgage brokers, you know, just, you know, friends and family, there is there is an anticipation that rates are probably going to come down over the next 12 months. We think it, they might remain higher for longer and that there might still be another rate hike or two to come. Um, but I think there's that there's still a very, you know, sharp memory in people's minds about the 2021 experience. And so, um, they'd rather get set ahead of potential rate cuts. Mm -hmm. um, I think the rental situation is certainly contributing as well. Um, you know, we've had record migration. That's really tightened up rental markets. We don't think migration is directly boosting house prices. Uh, the work we've done and data from the ABS suggests that, uh, you know, migrants, about 38% of them will own a property after they've been here for five years. Um, most people will wait till they have PR, which usually takes three years or more. Um, if you're buying before PR, you have permanent residency, 
there's just a lot of barriers in your way in terms of higher costs and, um, and you know, technically a ban on owning established property. Um, and so I think what we're seeing, the, the impact of migration is really just about it's tightening the rental market, it's driving up rents. And so what you're seeing as a result is people who are currently renting who are just deciding, you know what, we weren't planning on pulling the trigger yet, we're not buying the house we were hoping to buy, but we want to get out of this situation. So we'd like to buy an apartment or, or buy a townhouse instead. Um, and I think the other factor we're seeing is, is it's really a, a remaking or a shifting of the type of buyers. Um, what we see from, from various data sources is buyers are skewing higher income and, uh, and they're coming with more, more de- larger deposits, more cash, uh, often from, from family. Um, we see that in, um, for example, CBA publishes data every six months about the income bands of their borrowers. And we've seen a, a very stark fall in the share of lower income borrowers and a big rise in the share of high income borrowers. And that's really, you know, that, that's above and beyond what we see from normal income growth. We think that's driven by that skew to higher income borrowers. Because if you could only borrow, um, you know, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars to start with, um, once that's reduced by 30 percent, there's not a whole lot of options left in a lot of capital cities now. Uh, and the second factor, we see this through the fact that um, we're seeing in aggregate data kind of for, for mortgages, we're seeing that essentially there's less cash being used to fund purchases. And so we think that's being driven by particularly um, family support and, and generational wealth transfers. Um, the way to think about that is, you know, one way is that it's that rental crisis is meaning parents who might have kids who are studying, going to uni, starting their careers are saying, well, I was going to help you out with rent anyway. Why don't I just buy an apartment and you can start paying off a mortgage instead of paying, um, you know, a thousand dollars rent to live in a small two bedroom apartment? Um, and so I think, I think that's, that's all playing out. Uh, at the same time, you're probably seeing the odd, um, you know, the odd investor who might be getting attracted to the yields and the higher rents. But we think with where borrowing costs are, that's still probably at the margin. And in general, we're still probably seeing investors to be neutral to, to net sellers overall. Yeah, so you make a really interesting point. I mean, if your borrowing capacity has fallen 30%, um, then and you still want to enter a lot of these markets which haven't fallen, well, you need to be on a really strong borrowing capacity to still be able to afford to buy. And so do you worry, though, Carlos, that, that um, obviously there's inequality issues here, you know, um, but do you worry that there's not enough legs, there's not enough higher-income peoples to sustain a recovery if listings increase or you know, and the, similarly with intergenerational wealth, I, I'm amazed with the amount of deposits I've seen clients have in the last 12 months. Um, you know, the amount of money getting passed down generations. I, I don't know whether that's, you know, because they've got a young family and there's a rental crisis or, you know, it's just, you know, changes with super. Like, I don't know what's driving the, the money down or whether it's, I don't think people are dying any faster than they were in the past, right? So what's your take on the, the sustainability of this recovery? And are we going to really need a massive increase in borrowing capacity um, to continue to go make stronger and stronger highs? Um, look, I, I really struggle to see this this recovery being sustainable in the long term. If I look at housing affordability for both renting and, and mortgages, it, it's never been worse, quite frankly. Um, going back to the 1980s, we've, we've done analysis and it's it's never been worse. In Nationally, um, you now require... Um, about 43% of the average income to service a, a mortgage to, to buy the average home. In Sydney, it's now 50%. Um, in general, the rule of thumb is more than 30% of your income is unaffordable. Um, what we're seeing now nationally is every capital city, except for Perth, is unaffordable for the average household. 
And Sydney is now unaffordable for all but the top 20% of income earners. So it's a really, um, you know, from an inequality perspective, it's, it's a really uh, pretty bad housing market, to be frank. Um, and I think the risk is if we were to see a material rise in supply, um, that we might see some of the strength we've seen in the last couple of months falter. Um, that said, I don't see what drives a big increase in supply at this stage. Um, I think, you know, you would require something like quite a hard economic landing, a large rise in unemployment, um, something like that that really scares people and forces them to, to sell. Um, a, another big part of it is that the, the rental market's so tight that even if you are really struggling with mortgage payments, um, you're not going to be that much better off by, by renting. Um, so even if you are, you know, really up against it with with the four percent of rate increases, switching to to rent to a rental um, isn't going to help as much as it might have in the past, and it's not necessarily an easy task to find it. And I just think at the moment what we're seeing is still the listings, the supply side is still really tight. In fact, you know, there's a lot of headlines that listings are picking up, spring is coming through, but when we actually look beyond the total listings figures, the total dwellings, um, what we see is a very stark contrast between units and houses and we see that unit listings are actually running around record highs in our view that's partly because investors are selling out but home listings detached house listings are running at around still running um, not far off record lows so it's a very divided market uh, and actually you can go that's i think nationally now it's about 70 so i'm just looking at my data here there's about 70 percent of listings for houses if you go back to 2019, that would have been 75. Now, 5% doesn't sound like a lot, but that's tens of thousands of, of properties now kind of shift in that if you think that there's, uh, you know, 500, 600,000 odd um, housing or dwelling transactions a year. So we have seen a, a big shift in that dynamic, and that means that for the, the family that's looking for a well-located owner-occupier home, there's still not a whole lot of supply out there. And it's hard to see what drives that up. The other factor that I think is really holding back supply is just transaction costs. It costs so much money to, to change houses now with where house prices are. In Sydney and Melbourne, you're looking at paying close to 10% of the dwelling value, um, which is worth about 80 to 90% of average earnings. Mm. So you have a lot of people who would love to upgrade, but they just can't actually fund that significant transaction costs and still get the house they want on the other side. Yeah, so they they not only can they not fund the transaction costs, they potentially can't fund the uh, the jump in capacity they need to to go from one house to another. I mean, Carlos, do you see that that um, supply of new housing is is going to stay really tight because you know if people get can't afford to upgrade and they don't want to because of the cost and the rental crisis and they don't want to, they're just going to be stuck in houses and. Um, that's their only option and so you're going to see listings of you know detached housing still stay really low going into 2024 is that your expectation it's feeling that way um you know i think we will see a bit of a pickup you know we generally see and there was actually um earlier this year not to get too too kind of wonky or uh but there was earlier this year an interesting paper out from some economists who used some data from rea um really granular kind of customer suburb level data and they found there's definitely a strong relationship between listings and price growth. So the fact that we're up near, near record highs again, that prices have been rising strongly, will, will probably shake some supply out. Um, but I think in general, what we're going to see is that owner-occupied upgrader, which is really the um, the flywheel of, of kind of housing supply, is still remaining pretty challenging. Borrowing capacity is down 30%. They, you know, they've got this 
big uh, cost to cover in terms of their uh, transaction costs. And, um, you know, while we are getting near peaks again, for anyone who bought, um, you know, in 2017 or even at, or at the boom in 2021, they haven't had as much price growth as normal. And what we actually find is it's not so much the price growth you see over one year that matters so much for, for housing turnover and that decision to sell. It's really that consistent, steady price growth we mm-hmm. see over time that allows upgraders uh, to have that buying power to make the next step. And going back through history, what we saw is a period like 2015, 2016, we saw really strong housing turnover. Was That was coming off the back of close to a decade of, of, of fairly strong price growth. You know, there was a bit of a hiccup with the GFC, but but it mm. wasn't, you know, that bad in the end. Um, and that really allowed a lot of people to, to step up and take that next step. What we're seeing now is outside of the COVID boom, um, prices, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, haven't actually moved that much for a while. And so there's you not don't have as much equity sitting behind those upgraders at a time that their their borrowing power is, is materially reduced. So um, going into this, uh, the crystal ball, I guess, what the RBA is going to do over the next few years, um, I mean, what's Jardin's take? I mean, the, the, the worries with wars around the world and, you know, inflation, I mean, you know, there's lots of different ways to look at this. You know, does inflation stay higher for longer? Do rates stay higher for longer? I mean, what's Jardin's take on the most likely scenario or is it, you know, a bit 50-50 at the moment? Look, um, we are expecting... Certainly things remain higher for long. We don't think we're going back to the kind of pre-COVID level of rates and, and inflation anytime soon. Um, look, inflation's definitely coming down from eight, 7 and 8%. We're not going to go back to that anytime in, in a hurry. Um, we're, you know, getting down to 4% or so in our view is pretty much baked in. But getting back down to the RBA's target of 2 to 3% is still going to be a bit of a challenge. And there's a couple of reasons. You know, you do still have big rises in rents coming through. Um, while asking rents have now peaked, so rents on the market for new properties, it takes a good two to three years for that to filter through to the whole stock of rentals just because of um, people's tenancy agreements and the delays in repricing. And and as you know, there's obviously an incentive for a landlord not to put the rent up too much when he's got the same tenant because there can be, you know, you might lose them and then end up losing the benefit through a couple of weeks of unpaid rent. Um, you've also got still got big increases in things like insurance and utilities coming through. So we're expecting inflation is probably going to remain um, closer to 3% than the, the 2% it was pre-COVID. And um, in and we do still expect another rate hike for the RBA next month. Um, so we expect rates are going to remain at about 4.35% through to until the end of next year, maybe longer. And even then, we don't see big cuts coming through. We expect they'll cut maybe to around kind of 3 3.5%. Um, so you're getting about, about you know, in terms of borrowing capacity, that's only going to boost your borrowing capacity by, um, you know, maybe 10%, um, probably less. Um, now, the other wild card is probably um, APRA, if they decide to do anything on the, on the serviceability buffer, which is 3% at the moment. They've previously highlighted that can range between 2 and 5%. And so at 3 it's still at the lower end of the range. And, um, and I think, you know, based on what they've said publicly over the last couple of months, it doesn't feel like any change there um, is imminent. And I think um, given we're now seeing things like credit growth and, and housing loan flows, um, the data from the RBA and the ABS uh, begin to stabilise and even improve a bit, I don't think we're going to see any kind of material um, easing from, from APRA in the near term. So I think it's kind of we're in this lower borrowing capacity world um, and that's going to make it harder. And I think for a lot of buyers who maybe looked at what they could have bought in 2020 or 2021, um, that's going to remain out of reach for 
for quite a while, um, you know, once you factor in that big reduction in borrowing capacity and the big rise in house prices we've had with it. Yeah, Carlos, I guess um, there's you know, been a crazy change in the construction industry and the building industry and the cost of build has, has gone up significantly over the last few years and, you know, approvals and commencements are, are way down on where they were and um, not just for new house and land but for, for high-rise dwelling and medium density. Do you think there's a bit of a pressure building where, you know, the banks and uh, are going to want to get in APRA's ear and the art to basically try to, to help the you know, the lower to medium income households and um, and then also to stimulate our construction industry, which typically that a lot of that affordability type of housing targets. Yeah, look, the construction sector's in a been in a real challenging spot. We um, you know, activity is well down. The leading indicators we look at are probably base, things like land sales, but they're they're certainly not strong. Um, the biggest the biggest hurdle at the moment is is affordability. Yeah. Um, you know, for example, you know, House and land packages you often see, um, you know, some for the big, the bigger uh, sellers of those that they probably sell close to fifty percent of them to first home buyers. Yeah, they're now down to less than thirty percent first home buyers because that even that kind of relatively more affordable product is out of reach for a lot of yep. first home buyers. Um, the challenge we see is that you know if you think about we, we've broken down, you know, new dwelling costs into land and and construction costs, and whenever I talk to people in the industry, everyone else wants someone else to take a cut. The developers want the construction costs to come down. The builders want the land costs to come down. Everybody wants rates to come down. Um, but it's hard to see those affordability issues getting better. Um, there's certainly building pressure from the regulatory side, from the public sector to drive more activity. Um, but unless you have someone come in and, and essentially decide, you know, buy these dwellings or, or fund them, it's difficult to see the activity picking up in the near term, just given the buyers aren't there. And I think this an important point comes back to what I mentioned earlier about that the, the cohorts of buyers we're seeing. This affluent, higher income, you know, buyer with cash from family to support their purchase, they're buying generally more around the inner middle ring suburbs. They're not buying out in the outer su- suburban fringe where we see these house and land developments. So I think um, that is that's the other challenge. The type of buyers who are driving the current market are not the type of buyers who are who are buying that those sort of products. Um, and then secondly, on the multis front, um, you know, on the apartment front, there's actually quite a bit of apartment supply on the market mm. at the moment with investors net sellers of of property in Sydney and Melbourne. So it's not that it's necessarily a really tight market. And what we've seen, I think, is Australians um, to some extent have wised up. You know, if we look back to the last big building boom through 2015 to 17. Off the plan was really hot then. People were making in the early stages good money. You know, by the time the build was finished, they were sometimes being able to sell for 10, 20% plus what they paid. Um, since then, a lot of people have, have lost money and a lot of these apartments, these areas have really stagnated just given the, the increase in supply. And so I think people are much more cautious. And on top of that, we're seeing a record rate of building, building companies fail and go insolvent. And so I think buyers are, are naturally, um, you know, pretty careful, you know, they're a bit scared. They don't want to put um, their money into a new build and then find out six, 12 months later that the build has gone bankrupt and they have to, you know, fund the completion with an extra $100,000 that they don't have. So there's a whole host of reasons lined up against the builders. And, you know, while a bit more borrowing capacity would help, um, I don't think it's quite enough. I think this is, you know, the the plan to to build more supply is the right one. We do need more supply, particularly with, um, you know, probably going to be close to 500,000 migrants coming into the country in, in this calendar year. But um, I don't see it being able to be delivered in the near term 
with with costs for for builds where they are. And probably what is going to be, you know, part of that adjustment is going to be changing the way we build property. And even in outer suburban areas, it's probably going to be a shift to more medium density things like townhouses, where you can bring down the land cost and make the product a bit more affordable for those entry level buyers who might be struggling uh, to get in for even the, you know, the relatively small land sizes that we see in Sydney. Yeah, so I mean, the high density apartments, uh, you know, there's a listings on the market. Um, so even if there was more affordability, the you know, buyers may just go for what's on the market now rather than off the plan. There's not a pressure to buy them. I mean, the house and land packages sounds like there's a real capacity problem. So it might help that part of the market. Um, but you know, uh, yeah, that, that I guess the anything people are saying there is the the like low rise multi dwelling townhouses could be, you know, a play they have to make. I mean. There was a lot of concern around, uh, you know, banking crisis, you know, the fixed rate cliff, and I know you do a lot of reporting on the banks and their, their loan books. Um, you know, what realistically is happening behind the scenes at these banks? How concerned are they and um, how are they protecting, you know, borrowers? Look, um, the banks are watching things very, very closely. So so's the RBA. The RBA put out an interesting freedom of information request a few weeks ago where they um, showed a, a whole bunch of, novel and interest in new ways. They're looking for signs of stress, looking at things like calls to the National Debt Helpline, website visits to to websites that help with debt as well. And, and um, you know, I think the banks mm. are tracking calls to their hardship lines, et cetera. In general, what we're seeing is, um, you know, households are, are managing pretty well. Um, they're cutting back on, on non-essential spending because they need to to make ends meet. Um, but we're not seeing a big rise in, in mortgage stress or, or mortgage arrears yet, which is where people can't pay their mortgage. Um, the ex, One of the positive things we are seeing is I think investors selling out in the current market is a positive sign from a financial stability st- uh, perspective because um, there's a lot of investors who are acting rationally and they're saying, you know what, when my fixed rate ends, I'm going to struggle with the cash flow from holding this portfolio of properties. And so I'm going to sell one of them now, deleverage a bit, um, and improve my my overall portfolio's position. And I think that's really good. They're not being forced to do anything by the banks. Um, the big worry from a bank perspective is the double, the, the combination of arrears, so you can't pay your mortgage, and negative equity, which means your house is worth less than your loan. Um, and what we're seeing at the moment is arrears are picking up, but because the housing market is almost back to regular, record levels, negative equity is nowhere to be seen. The RBA actually um, had a great chart in their, court, in their semi-annual financial stability review um, the other week that showed negative equity is now just 0.15% of the mortgage book. So mm-hmm. there's basically no one, a, a very, very small bucket of people who are in that situation where their, their, prop, their home is worth le- less than their loan. Um, and that means that from a bank perspective, you know, the the mortgage market is, is remains pretty safe despite all the headlines about about stress, um, and you know there, there's certainly you know challenges. I don't want to downplay the fact that at the individual level there are many households who are struggling, and the RBA highlighted this again that five percent of households don't have enough income to fund their mortgage and just basic bare necessities, which excludes things like private health insurance and school fees. Um, and if you include those things, it's more like kind of 13% who can't fund that. But what we're seeing so far, at least, is that these um, these borrowers who are in distress are generally dipping into some of their savings or their buffers that they've built up over the last few years, dipping into that offset account that hopefully increased a bit over the last couple of years to help um, to help fund that shortfall. 
Yeah, Carlos, I mean, finally, um, Australians sort of switched on that they can refinance their mortgages in the last few years. Um, you know, we had we banks were playing on apathy and um, the lazy borrower for many years, and, and that was uh, adding to their bank profits, I guess. I mean, what's your take on just the, the amount of refinancing that's happened in the last few years and what that means in terms of restructuring loan terms to longer periods and releasing equity and, and how that's been a real good, I guess, a cushion or a, a you know, a stabilizer to the market. Yeah, look, it's, it's definitely been a big help. Um, it's, it's actually meant because so many people have been able to refinance and get lower rates. Um, you know, what initially what it drove is a huge amount of competition from the banks. So through last year and, and even into early this year, we saw an incredible amount of competition for banks, for, for new for new customers, both for refi and for, for, for buying, um, so much so that they actually, competition from the banks actually offset um, more than two full RBA hikes. So even though the cash rate had increased to, to 4%, mortgage rates for a new customer had only increased to about 3.5%. Um, what we're seeing now is we're starting to see that that offset against, but that a bit, but that that activity has has certainly provided a cushion. You know, as you pointed to, you know, if you're on a 20 years left on your mortgage and you refinance back out to 30 years, it just gives you a bit more breathing space. It lowers your repayments a bit. It makes it a little bit easier to, to make ends meet, and we've certainly been seeing a lot of people doing that. Um, cash out equity, we don't get great data on. Um, I suspect the banks were, you know, if you're doing that in the midst of the downturn, the banks are probably being pretty careful with their valuations. You probably know that better than I would. Mm. Um, but I think in general, what we're seeing is that refinance activity has has offset some of the impact of rate hikes. And in general, um, you know, I think it's fair to say the banks have actually been pretty fair, you know, even in cases where they might have fixed rate customers rolling off who may not qualify for their loan, um, they aren't taking that into account. They're not, you know, they're not trying to trap these mortgage yep. prisoners, these people who can't go elsewhere. They're, they're actually treating them pretty fairly. And the banks have realised, you know what, if if I take care of my customers well today, hopefully in, in you know, one, two, five years' time when they come to, to buy a new property or to refinance again, they're, you know, they're, they're not going to they're not going to switch. They're going to be happy to stay with us. And that's their goal is I think, you know, they've realised the value of those existing customers and that maybe they need to take better care of them. What, what that's meant is that um, what we've seen is the loyalty tax or the, the difference between the mortgage rates that a new customer versus an existing customer pay on average has shrunk by about 30 basis points over the last year. So that's gone down from over 50, uh, over half a percent um, uh, around kind of April, May when the RBA first started hiking to only 0.2% today. So there's been a big decrease in that in that loyalty tax. Um, that's come at the expense of banks, but it's been, a, <laughs> it's been a boon to borrowers. Yeah, absolutely. So if we think about going into, um, and that's a great thing for consumers, right, that, that loyalty tax is money that could be in their pocket rather than the bank's profits. So, I mean, if you're going into 2024, I mean, in your mind, what are the major headwinds um, that people aren't factoring into to prices now? And, you know, what is, could be some of the surprising tailwinds? You know, consumer sentiment's ridiculously low. You know, do we get inflation under control and do we see rate cuts earlier? Like, what what would be your sort of take on the, the things that could either slow things down or, or potentially speed things back up? In terms of weakness, the, the downside risks would definitely be more supply coming online and higher unemployment. You know, if people start losing their jobs, um, that's going to obviously have a, a negative impact on sentiment. People's willing to, you know, maybe stretch themselves that bit further. Right now, unemployment remains near record lows. And despite low sentiment, you know, most people who want a job have a job. In fact, if anything, it kind of feels like people are probably working more than they want to to try and help 
and make ends meet. And we're definitely seeing that the share of people who are working two jobs has never been higher and has been growing um, at a very fast rate over the last couple of years. So I think um, that that would be the, the key risk I'd watch the downside and that, you know, flowing through into more supply, which if demand is soft, maybe we can't, can't quite take. On the upside, look, it's going to come down to things like, um, you know, rate cuts if they come earlier. Um, I think you'd need to see uh, a bit of a softening in the economy to get the RBA to, to cut rates earlier. Mm. If things hold up better than feared like they have been, um, then they may kind of remain around where they are. Um, the other, the key positive that is is a known known, but I think people are kind of forgetting about because they haven't been talked about much, is the, the stage three of the tax cuts. Um, mm. They're going to come through from July next year. Um, in aggregate, it's worth about $20 billion um, to a to a top income tax bracket household or income earner. I think it's worth about $9,000 a year. Um, so it's not huge, but it is a, a, a little bit of extra, um, you know, juice for your borrowing capacity, boost your net income, uh, could provide a bit of support for the market. Um, but for me, look, it's all going to come down to supply. It's all going to be that demand and supply relationship and particularly just how much stock we come into market. And more than anything, it's really about, you know, not just looking at the headline numbers because we're seeing so much bifurcation below the surface between houses and units, different cities, different areas within those cities, you know, the owner-occupied suburbs versus the investor suburbs, um, that I think it's, it's really going to come down to to a lot of those those granular details between areas with how things perform. Yeah, the final thing I guess we didn't really probably touch on was probably the regions and and you know you mentioned there the houses versus apartments, the you know the high investor areas versus owner occupiers. I mean, and, and I guess the the higher end of the market versus the lower end. I guess um, what's your take on the regions because it's a completely different story, um, you know, versus what's happening in the capital cities. Look, I, th- I think the outlook there. Still remains challenging. We saw a lot of people, um, you know, buy the the second house, move out to the to regional areas, the you know kind of commuter hubs um, during COVID, during the lockdowns, when there was an expectation that you know they might be able to work from home and live there. Um, you know, call it kind of four days a week, only only coming to the city two or three. And we're starting to see certainly pressure. Um, more businesses are, are putting pressure on staff to be back into the office most days. I did see yep. one company recently saying giving their staff only 20 days possible to work from home a year. CBA has been in the news um, this year about, you know, kind of discussions with the union about, you know, work from work from office requirements. So I think um, it has definitely been become more challenging for those people who move to those areas to, to return. At the same time, we've also seen, um, you know, the, those regional economies, um, particularly those lifestyle ones that are quite dependent on tourism, um, you know, things have slowed. People are cutting back. People are cutting back on domestic tourism. Um, 2022 was the year of the domestic holiday, you know, back when international travel was still was was possible but but was still fairly restricted and capacity was limited. 2023 was the year, you know, the, the Mediterranean holiday, uh, Italy, Greece seemed to be where everyone was going, at least based on my social media feeds. <laughs> Um, I wasn't lucky enough to go there myself, but you know what we've heard anecdotally is those lifestyle kind of tourism hotspots. Think the North Coast in New South Wales, Sunshine Coast. Um, now they're, they're still doing okay, but they've certainly not been booming the same way they were last year. And so I think that has an impact where not only are the the people who move there looking at energy coming back, uh, but you're also seeing. Um, the economy soften a bit, and then we're also seeing, given the housing crisis, um, more pressure on things like uh, short stay rental taxes. Like in Victoria, they put the Airbnb, they're putting the Airbnb levy in. Um, I believe, New, like uh, New South Wales and Queensland, have been talking about potentially doing similar changes. There's a restriction; uh, they've increased the restrictions in Byron Bay and that Shire. 
about how many days can be leased. So I think when you've got um, when accommodation is plentiful and vacancies are you know in the rental markets well behaved, people aren't too so fussed about these short stay rentals. But when you've got a super tight rental market and rents are rising at double digits, um, you know they become an easy place to target. And I think what we'll see is you know for the for those regional markets, it just means that your pool of buyers is shrinking. You're not getting those see your tree changes coming anymore and you're not getting that opportunistic kind of airbnb investor who's thinking i can buy this i can rent it out you know half the year and i can make a 10 percent yield it's just it's just going to be harder to do all that so i think the the regions is is a is definitely a bit more challenging than the capital cities yeah absolutely and we can see that in listing data it's also much higher than these locations prices are, are down much uh further than they were in the capitals and um yeah different regions are, are in different situations i guess we didn't talk about it carlos but you mentioned around people going holidays to italy and greece etc but the global story i mean we sometimes forget when we're here in australia what's your take on the the global situation i know it's a big question to end on but you know, is there anything that we should be really concerned around uh, and how that could impact the Australian property market? Um, look, it's, it's hard to say. Migrations are definitely a big theme and, you know, it's certainly impacting other economies as well. We're seeing New Zealand, Canada, Australia all having really, really strong rebounds in migration, um, which is kind of fueling um, the, the recovery in house prices. Um, I think, you know, to an extent, the outlook in China is something to watch. Um, the economy has been a bit softer than people expected, which has weighed on, on sentiment there. Um, but, you know, anecdotally, it's maybe also causing a bit of benefit to our property market and that people are, you know, who do have potential capital in China may be looking to, to deploy it elsewhere and to, to put it into a, you know, a safer um, location or kind of, you know, more stable location like Australia. Um so maybe if things stabilise over there, you do you will see that soften. Um, but I think, look, migration is a big global factor to watch. And while, like I said, while I don't think it, you know, is driving necessarily the sales today, given the lags and how long it takes people to purchase, um, it is going to underpin long-term demand for more housing. And, and again, it kind of comes back to this issue of supply where the supply is not coming today, but, um, but it is going to have to come at some stage. It's just a matter of kind of making things stack up, which is going to take a combination of, you know, land construction and interest rates to to make things make sense and and changing the built form, um, but the migration is probably the key issue. And I think it's also it's also worth noting that's that's a key reason why the economy has been faring better than better than feared. Um, you know, one one stat that I've that I've found interesting that clients have been really surprised by is the fact that um, you know, we are in an incredibly severe retail recession. If we if we strip out prices and population growth from retail sales. They're down four and a half percent year on year. That's the lowest figure on record, even lower than during the depths of the COVID lockdowns. Mm. If we just look at the headline retail sales figure, it's one and a half percent up year on year. It's not mm. great; it's fairly soft, but it's not that bad. Mm. And so there's just this massive disconnect between if we actually look at things at the individual level, and it kind of comes down to borrowers as well. At the individual borrower level, there's definitely some people there who are doing who are doing it really tough, and they're really having to have a very hard look at their budgets and cut things back. Um, but if we look at the aggregate level for the whole economy, things are doing, um, you know, I think a lot better than anyone expected they would be six or 12 months ago with a with a 4% cash rate. And I think that population growth is a massive part of it. There's a, you know, when you're bringing in three, we've got 3% growth in adults a year, um, it covers over a lot of underlying weakness in the economy. Yeah, particularly the uh, the good old baby boomers, you know, especially if they've got low mortgages and they've got big balances in their super funds and and cash, they're getting pretty good returns, right? Their equities are holding yeah. up and their term deposits are 
I have a good back or good old days, you know, getting six percent return on cash. So <laughs> thanks so much for coming in, Carlos. Um, that's a great chat, and uh, hopefully our listeners enjoyed it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Chris. Have a good one. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.